You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast with us, Cain and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice and speaking of magicians, it's been a good week for magic, I think. Magic, prime time on the telly! Prime time? Uh-huh. It wasn't it on Tuesday night? Yeah, prime time is, is the time of day, is it? Yep. What time is it on? It was on at 8.30. So that's prime time, is it? I guess so. Oh. Well, how exciting. Hey, well, there was some prime time magic on the TV this week. Um, we we are most amused oh, and amazed. You can't cut me off when I'm, when I'm urban. I, I, it, it, it makes it seem like I don't know what I'm saying. The thing is, what you don't realise, because you don't listen to the podcast, yeah. is I cut all the ums out. So you're going to cut that one out? That um that we're now... Oh, we have to leave it in. Because we're, talk, we're talking about the um. Okay. Um, oh, I've done another one. Look, I can't, I can't help myself. Maybe I, now I have actually forgotten what I was going to say. So there was some magic on the television. Yep, I liked it. I liked it. It was called We Are Most Amused and Amazed. It was Prince Charles' 70th birthday party celebration. Are we still talking about it? From the Apollo. I thought that was it. We were just going to say if we liked it or not, and then move on to the guest. No, we need to tell people. People might not have seen it, and they might want to see the show. Okay. So, arguably, two of the best magicians in the world. They probably are. Penn and Teller, they probably are. We did mention for the Charlie Caper episode that I thought Charlie Caper was one of the top ten magicians in the world. People have been sending us their top ten magicians list. But privately, stop sending us things privately. Send them to us at Kate Naval Magic. We've gone off piece, so are we not talking about Amazed and Amused anymore? You've started talking about something else. We are talking about Amazed and Amused, but I still want people to send us their okay. top ten magicians for a future show. You're doing a plug of some description, are you? It's not a plug, it's just getting people engaged. Oh, right. This is, enga- this is engaging. Is this engaging? This is engaging. The thing is, you just never know, do you? You never, never know. know if people are turning off. If they turn on now, it's got nothing to do with the context. I think this makes sense for the guest we've got coming off, because he goes off over here, over there. We've got a very exciting guest coming off. <laughs> but before then, we are most amused and amazed. Prince Charles' 70th birthday magic show featuring Penn and Teller, featuring the Urich brothers, Featuring a load of comedians, and also Stephen was there as well. Wasn't Stephen he? the magician. He did. He Stephen the magician. I generally thought it was a really good show. Mm. I think that is how magic should be viewed. There should be more shows like that on TV. A variety show. I think if you watch Magic, 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 it loses its appeal a little bit. But I think magic thrown in every now and then, in and amongst some very good comedians and. Impressionists. It was nice to see Alison McGowan back, mm. wasn't it? Some of them were a little bit um, old school. It was an old school variety show, wasn't it, really? It was. But then it was Prince Charles's 70th birthday, so I'd imagine it's a collection of acts that he's enjoyed over the time. Who was your favourite? My favourite comedian, person. comedy act, person on the show. <sighs> My favourite part of the show yeah. was the bit that merged comedy and magic and was probably the fourth magic act that we didn't mention at the beginning, which is uh, Mischief Theatre and Penn and Teller's new play. Very exciting new play. The magic show that goes wrong. I thought it was hilarious. Obviously, Mischief Theatre do the show that goes wrong, which I went to at the turn of the year. And it it was fantastic. It's going to start in the US and then come here to the UK. Can't wait to go and watch it. It's going to be very good. 
we'd heard about it a little while ago, and hopefully we might talk a bit more about that later on on this podcast. Okay. Not this episode. Right. Later I, on. I can't say the name of the person I enjoyed the most. Really? Yeah. Why? I can't say his name. Is it Omid Dalili? It was like that's <laughs> yeah. who it was. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can say it. Hamid Jalili. Ashley Kasusi, our Iranian correspondent, will tell us if we've said that correct or wrong. Is he coming in? Uh, I think he's coming in. All right. Maybe. If there's room in this room, because, ladies and gentlemen, you might notice what normally happens at this point. Ed Kane buggers off, and then we play an interview yeah. that we filmed when I went away I went and in. interviewed I someone. I normally go to the pub, but I'm not allowed to go to the pub today. Why not? Well, you said I have to come and do the interview with you. I didn't say you have to, I said you could. Oh, right. And you got so excited because you knew that coming up... I'm excited about the guests, but that's not to say I haven't been excited about previous guests. Coming up in a moment, Neil Kelso joins us in this exact room on Talking Tricks. Ed Kane is going to be sat quietly in the corner whilst I do the intro. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Are they all different flavours? I think I'm going to struggle to sit in after an hour. Please talk. <laughs> you can talk. You're yeah. fine. You're a member of the crew. Joining us now on... <laughs> <laughs> oh, boys will be boys. Coat's coming off now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like having a box of fireworks in the corner, isn't it? <laughs> Joining us now... You're such a little shit, aren't you? <laughs> How long... We're a minute, a minute of gold. <laughs> Joining us... still recording. Yeah, just doing one continuous thing. Yeah, it's just fun, isn't it? We might use some of this. I think everyone. Shall I do the introduction for you? Joining us now on Talking Tricks, it's Neil Kelso. Hi, Neil. Hello. Neil joins us across from a box of Turkish delight. If you hear any Turkish delight chewing during this interview, that's Ed Kane. Yeah. He's probably going to be silently eating. He's just munching away. Turkish delight as we go through. Well, Neil Kelso, for those that don't know, is a leading light on the magic and cabaret scenes. He's an established actor too, and is often known as a professor. Before we kick off, Neil, Mr. Neil Kelso, tell us about Professor Kelso. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Kelso is one of many characters I have been, and sometimes continue to be, over the course of lots of adventures. Professor Kelso specifically is an esoteric, travelling, storytelling, slightly magician slash snake oil salesman slash character. Now the reason I started by asking about Professor Kelso is I know that the listener will probably be confused as in why is he talking about palm reading and traveling and not being the md of sacred heart hospital uh, yeah but they're thinking of dr kelso they are thinking of dr kelso yes but to find out mm. neil mm-hmm. how well you know professor kelso mm-hmm. and yourself mm-hmm. we're going to kick off talking tricks by playing dr kelso or Professor Kelso. <laughs> oh, good. Dr. Kelso. Or Professor Kelso. I'm no Superman. Professor Kelso or Dr. Kelso. Fact number one. Who is this? I'm ready. Neil Kelso. Is that the answer? <laughs> <laughs> is that the question? Oh. <laughs> number one. I was born... In Monroeville, Pennsylvania, at which time my family name was Kelsonovich. Well, that is a difficult one to start with, because I 
He was not born in that place. I believe that that was Dr. Kelso from Scrubs. It's Dr. Kelso from Scrubs. So, I'm Neil, have some Turkish delight. Have a Turkish uh, There we go. Mm. Eat it, guys. But whilst you eat that Turkish delight, mm-hmm. whilst we're on Origins, mm. where were you born, Neil? Where did you grow up? Mm. I'm a mystery wrapped in an enigma eating a Turkish delight. I was born in the south of England in a place called Winchester which has a big cathedral, the longest nave in Europe. Fun fact. But I grew up, did some of my growing up in Belgium, where I went to circus school, and then I went to university in Bath. Then I lived in Southampton for a little while, then in Paris for a little while, and now I live in London. Lots to Mm. develop on there. I'm going to come in at the Belgian circus school. Mm. What ages were you at that, and what kind of thing were you doing? Age eight till I was about 13. Started as a juggler and clown and learnt other things as well because as a clown you have to train in everything. Primarily juggling. I studied with a man called Arkady Poupon who is a legend in the world of juggling. And so yeah, that was an interesting thing. So I did some juggling there and that took me to... Interestingly, I travelled to Budapest at the circus and performed there and I came second place in an international theatre competition for my clowning when I was aged... Nine. And Budapest is relevant because you've just been on a stag do there. I have just been on a stag do, but I cannot say or reveal any details about anything that happened. I can. <laughs> the WhatsApp group has been closed. No one is allowed to know any more facts or figures, apart from the few pictures that, that I think have been shared. I can see in your eyes that it's clearly still a trigger for you, so I'll, I'll move on. Post-traumatic stress is about to kick in. This is quite interesting, though, like growing up in, in a circus school. Is this like when you're a professional footballer and you, you play football, but then you have to pretend to care about maths as well? Are you doing normal studies alongside it? Is this an evening thing? What does your sort of day-to-day life look like when you're out in a place like that? Yeah, no, it was only half my week, so the rest of the time I did... Basically, the British curriculum, so British school stuff studies, but with lots of extra French and some Flemish, and then a few days a week, juggling. I suppose, are you encouraged to sort of perform a lot? Is there a lot of these kind of events that is, these are the school performances? Are you are you out juggling on the street as well? How much sort of um, persuasion are you given to, to be a juggler, to be performing? Uh, no, I think... <laughs> You have a very different image of what it was. No, it was like training like anything else. So it was just, yeah, in the in the room juggling with jugglers. And it was, the emphasis was much more on technique and practice and methodology rather than driving towards performance. So yeah, no, performing wasn't in my, that wasn't my main aim at the time. I didn't want to be centre of attention. It was just a thing I enjoyed doing. Just like playing piano. I was like learning piano at the same time. So, yeah. It's quite interesting, actually, because there's two philosophies to look at with juggling. One is that it's entertainment, and all you're doing is trying to entertain people. Another one is that it's pure skill, and if you can stand and juggle continuously a million balls and never drop, that is that is good, and that is impressive. Um, it sounds like you were kind of solely skill-based. When did you start to develop a desire or a passion for creating characters and being creative in that way? Well, even long before juggling, I was very interested in stories. Like as a kid, I really loved Roald Dahl. From as soon as I could learn things, I'd learnt some of his revolting rhymes and things. So I'd loved storytelling. And I guess it was at circus school that I first saw magicians properly and got to know magicians and ventriloquists. So I learnt some magic and some ventriloquism and it interested me kind of intellectually. 
So I guess it probably did have some roots there, some roots a bit earlier. It was through the music that I ended up performing more. You do grades, then you do exams, then you do things like I did the performer's diploma, which is kind of what you do after grade eight, you can either go as a teacher or as a performer. So I took the performer route, which did involve doing things like recitals and involve much more getting up in front of an audience and presenting me as a performance. So it was really through music that I sort of started performing rather than magic or other skills. But yeah, it was kind of during university that people started to want to see more and more magic tricks and I'd kind of be asked to do things, asked to host things, asked to introduce stuff, asked to go on things. So it kind of grew momentum then. It will come across, I'm sure, to the listener that you are a talented guy, a jack of many trades. Have you always kind of, obviously, you know, studying at university, there's a, there's a desire there to have an academic degree. Have you always then performed or did you have a proper job at I've any had, point? Did I've you come out of uni jobs. stuff? Yeah, so I, at the time of doing my A-levels, by that time I was living in England again, I did music, but I also, also did French because I spoke um, bilingual and um, I did business studies as well because that seemed like it covered lots of things. I did maths and I figured that I would be able to keep up music extracurricularly, but I wouldn't be able to keep up other things like business and stuff. So instead of going to music college, I decided to do a more kind of academic sciences degree, which was management. And then when I graduated from university, I decided that London was the exciting place to live. So I decided I would just get myself a job. I didn't really mind what it was, as long as it wasn't in finance, which seemed a bit boring. And as long as it would take me to London, where fun things happen all the time. But I don't know quite how it happened. I ended up working in finance, not in London. <laughs> and using my degree, using my French, using my business, but making like wealth management products for insanely rich people to become richer or do other things. That was actually a very exciting time because it was credit crunch time. It was working with regulators, working out what should happen with all this money that was in things like hedge funds. So that was kind of very interesting. So I had an interesting day job doing that. And then magic took off. Again, I was consulting for people and ended up not enough time for the day job then I lived from cabaret for a few years doing magic but then wanted to kind of work on a longer project again so I started working with festivals in a more businessy way and with the Mayflower Theatre in Southampton and some other people for consulting stuff so I've kind of done those sorts of things that are a bit more day jobby yeah so I've kind of flitted between many things I've not kind of been on a single career path I've kind of lots of parallel things going on which means that I never really have a CV that makes any sense but I'm, I'm happy I think the people that have CVs that don't make sense have fun lives or at least that's what I tell myself <laughs> yeah um, and I, I want to touch on more of you as a performer I want to talk about <laughs> cabaret but Ooh. the main thing I want I'm to do <laughs> I consent it's okay the main thing I, I want to do is give you another opportunity oh, is it time? <laughs> to win a piece of Turkish delight. Um, we Here know comes bit... the jingle, jingle, jingle! <laughs> Here comes that jingle! Dr. Kelso or Professor Kelso? We know a little bit more about Neil Kelso, but what I want to know is, was this a quote <laughs> used to describe Professor Neil Kelso mm-hmm. or... Bob Kelso, MD of Sacred Heart Hospital, <laughs> in the popular TV docu-series Scrubs. OMG. A constant source of amusement. I... Ooh. I mean, 
I'd like to think that I am a constant source of amusement. However, probably on a global scale, Scrubs has amused more people. So I'm going to throw caution to the wind and say Professor Kelso. Professor Neil Kelso. I'm going to say that. I'm afraid. Is it wrong? It's Bob Kelso. Is it Bob Kelso? <laughs> Bob Kelso he is, is wonderful. a constant source of amusement according to IGN. Oh, that big publication. Igan. The big Um, Yeah, well, I mean, I think Bob Kelso is my life trajectory. I think I am slowly becoming him. So I'm okay with that. It all turns out well in the end. Oh, look, there's that jingle again. Uh-oh. Dr. Kelso. Or Professor Kelso. Superman leaves everybody glued to their seats as he makes his way around the room. (laughs) I happen to know that that is indeed Professor Kelso. That definitely is something that someone once wrote about me. It is. Two things. Firstly, you've got a backlog of two bits of Turkish delight you can eat at any point. Okay. But... I had a lemony one last time. I will give you the full quote. Oh, please. Okay. Because it does sound, I I mean, it just sounds like you're running into people's offices and dicking about, doesn't it? But the full quote is, Kelso's act leaves everybody glued to their seats as he makes his way around the room, singling out members of the audience and making them question what's real. Do you remember who said this about you, Neil? No. This was said by Bored Panda. Okay, oh, right, yes. When they awarded you one of the top... 10 cabaret stars in the UK. That's a nice little accolade to have. It is, yeah, it's very it's very quotable. I don't think I agree with it. I think I could list at least 20 cabaret stars that I would rank above me in that, but it's very nice that somebody considered me that. And actually, cabaret is something I'm quite proud of because I my angle on cabaret is not so much as an entertainment art form necessarily, but as a more interesting artistic platform where you can challenge things and raise interesting and sometimes difficult questions. So uh, it excites me to not just be doing magic that confirms the way people see the world, but maybe makes them question what's real or whatever it is they said that does make people stop and think and maybe challenge some of their assumptions very deep and something actually i, I want to dig into a little bit oh, more feel free because i was asked probably a few months ago by a very young magician who was looking for places to work oh. and somebody said to him oh you should you should try and get cabaret gigs mm. and he said what is he asked me he was like what's cabaret oh. i don't know what it is and i think he'd been sold a few different stories Mm. um, on what cabaret is. Some people are just very lateral and like, oh, if it's a show after someone's had something to eat, Mm. it's cabaret. But you've got a a real nice thinking behind cabaret and I kind of want to understand a little bit more about some of the things that you've done Mm. that matches your description of cabaret. Yes, well, I do think cabaret could... uh, The definition for cabaret should stay very broad and I think it totally is fair to say that it's... It can be something after people have eaten. And some people see cabaret as being defined by the performance space. So quite often somebody would describe a room as being laid out with cabaret tables, for example. So you can define it in lots of different ways. So what the audience have just done, the arrangement of the audience. For me, cabaret in its most authentic form is a performance which breaks the fourth wall. So the fourth wall is like theatre speak for an imaginary wall that you build between performers and audience so that the audience can watch what's going on. So for me, cabaret 
steps through that wall and connects with people quite directly. Another attribute of cabaret that I think is very authentic cabaret is that it is subverting something. So it's turning something on its head or inside out. You very often get burlesque performers and the history of burlesque is to subvert, to joke, to make political statements, to make somebody who is in a position of political power seem ridiculous or absurd or to challenge that power that they seem to automatically have in society. So cabaret for me is about challenging some of these societal norms. And the movie Cabaret is a very good example of cabaret because it is telling very harsh truths about a very problematic time in history and some of the terrible things that are happening told in an almost entertainment art form which helps you engage with the subject in a way that you maybe couldn't otherwise which is both easier because it's not too intellectual it's quite emotive quite visual it's very engaging and inviting but it's also very powerful you can say more with laughter than you maybe can with a book or a rant online or those sorts of things so for me cabaret involves those sorts of things it's about involving the people that attend absolutely entertaining them probably also making them go away with a few more things to think about as a worker there can be you, you can be a member of a, a mixed bill cabaret mm. or it can be an evening of cabaret and yeah. you've done very interesting things in both of those arenas and i want to tackle them individually yes yes i feel from knowing what i know about you that we might wait a little bit more towards the longer and the bigger projects that you've been involved in i think mm -hmm. there's a lot more to, to kind of say on those so mm -hmm. maybe very quickly i suppose just chat to us a little bit about if you've been booked mm -hmm. to be on a, on a mixed bill it might be 10 minutes might be 15 20 minutes or something or it might be hosting and yeah. i suppose that's something else we'd have to take totally to two different approaches to talk me through the the kind of things that you would be doing imagining in the kind of example where i get approached by somebody who is running a light entertainment variety show so it is cabaret in terms of that it is short acts a series of variety but yes it's maybe more entertainment focused my starting point is always to wonder who the audience is because i think my route is always in that kind of cabaret thinking where i'm interested in what they think before they come into the room and what can i give them that when they leave the room they will be richer for is it something that maybe encourages them to think differently about some of society's big topics. Is it about sexism or about racism or about inclusion or about, about judging people by their appearance? Can it be ageism? Can it be all those sorts of things? So I'm interested in giving people really positive, encouraging messages that steer them towards being a kinder society. And so that's my starting point for looking at material. I would always want to make sure that that is the primary thing I deliver. And magic is a wonderful container for almost any kind of message because it has inherent in it a sort of structure. Most tricks or routines have a very natural beginning, middle and end, much in the same way like a song would. And so you have cabaret singers who would take a song form and put a message across. Magic can be a container for that as well. And it's perfectly valid for it to just be light entertainment, silly, distraction, fun. That is totally valid, especially in dark times. People need happy entertainment. And I enjoy clowning, that is my route. And Improvised comedy is very fun, and that breaking the fourth wall conversational style. So I've usually gravitated towards mentalism because it allows me those conversations with people and that improvisational environment, or things that very heavily involve audience participation. I've generally not performed very much silent manipulation type work or box illusion type work, or those are areas that, whilst they're very interesting to me intellectually, I don't find a way of getting a message across through them. So.
that's my starting point. Yeah, it's interesting that you finish on um, silent manipulation, so mm. to call it, and, and box illusions, and that being something that you would avoid. Those are things that I would naturally avoid with what I see as good cabaret, mm-hmm. because what I see as great cabaret, actually, is when the personality is bigger than what is happening. Mm. So you can be a really skillful magician, mm-hmm. or you can be a re- have a, the most wonderful voice in the world but mm. what I think is lovely and brilliant about cabaret is when the personality is bigger mm. so someone might come on and actually they might have the best voice in the world but they almost don't sing as well as they can because they're trying to get their personality across mm. have you ever worked on a character or you work towards how can my character be as big as possible or are you often drawing on on your own on yourself and who you are and exemplifying it for, for the um, arena you're in both I'm always drawing on myself literally and metaphorically I um, I'm drawing on you now you are <laughs> it's very distracting <laughs> fortunately anyway put the body paint down what you said there about the role that magic can offer in terms of box illusions and silent manipulation I think in a variety show if you're curating an evening which is diverse and interesting and will offer something for everyone people do want moments of the kind of texture that a silent manip act gives you, that kind of precision and beauty that many silent manipulation acts would offer. Big box illusions or stage illusions or those sorts of acts can definitely offer scale and pizzazz and fire and big happenings. For me, I tend to leave those moments of texture in the show to other art forms because I believe that my ability as a magician offering a manipulation act to for example, beautiful classical music, would not, in my opinion, convey as much emotion and powerful experience as, for example, allowing a contemporary dancer that moment in a show. Likewise, the big illusions and things in a variety context where, especially the technical requirements and quite often the flexibility of the venue and the amount of tech time you get, generally in a show... A circus performer that can do aerial hoop or can do straps or can do hand balancing can bring that, or a fire performer, can bring that scale better than I'm able to with magic. So, yeah, so I definitely kind of contain what bits of the show I think I'm well suited to. And how do I kind of get characters? A bit of both. Sometimes it's the show needs something or sometimes it's in playing in rehearsal room in my own process. There's something I want to explore. So sometimes the character comes from opportunity. Fritz, one of my characters, which is a very Weimar German-inspired musical act, came about because of an opportunity to co-host a Spiegel tent that was entirely Weimar-themed, so the character was entirely determined by the show. Um, Other times, Professor Kelso, for example, came from wanting to explore the even more deep end of mentalism, which goes off the edge beyond tricks into questioning the things that aren't yet understood. There's a long answer. That's a lot of words, isn't it? A lot of words. Am Good words, though. Quickly? No, it's, we'll slow you down later. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm going to have some Turkish delight. I'm well, still catching up on my wings. You, yeah, you are. You've got two to go. Mm. Um, well, look, coming up, I want to talk about uh, oh, I right. Draw Clouds, Neil Kelso's mm. brand new show. I also want to talk about these trees. Mm. But before then, I've got to go back to one of the first things you said when, um, in our game of Professor Kelso v. Dr. Kelso, uh-huh. when uh, it was revealed that you were voted by Board Panda as one of the top... 10 cabaret stars in the UK. You said mm. I could name about 20 more. I, this isn't another game in which I'm mm-hmm. going to force you to. But 
everything we've been speaking about, about cabaret, what's great cabaret, mm-hmm. uh, what's meaningful cabaret. I'd love to hear some great performers that you admire that are currently working on the scene. Well, that's very easy to get started because cabaret is an art form where you necessarily always collaborate. If you don't collaborate, you don't get rebooked. But if you do collaborate, your act becomes infinitely better and you learn from people from different disciplines, different art forms. So relevant to these trees, which we're going to talk about later, are two cabaret artists that I hold in incredibly high esteem are Alexander Lutley, who people, listeners will maybe know as Pi the Mime, or Mercury Presents, is a phenomenal, interesting, diverse cabaret artist who crosses lots of different disciplines, has training in mime, as well as being a very highly trained singer. So he's an amazing mover, amazing storyteller, an amazing clown, and has directed lots of different types of cabaret and plays with things including gender, so gender stereotypes. They currently have a show that's touring the UK called Princess Charming, which is a cabaret for children about gender, which at the heart of it has the message that girls don't have to wear pink, boys don't have to wear blue, that we should just be kind of shrugging off some of the things that we've inherited that aren't helpful, which is beautiful and amazing. So I think Alexander Lutley's doing amazing stuff. And uh, Felicity Furore is another phenomenal cabaret artist who is a burlesque performer and showgirl, costume maker, um, just a phenomenal presence on stage. The three of us have set up our own company called The House of Q, which is where we are recording this. It Welcome is. to The House <laughs> of Q. So we have a studio space that we share, we create shows together, we host a monthly cabaret together, we do duo routines that cross over between magic and mime, or between music and burlesque, or between showgirl and magic, and sometimes swapping what roles we play, which is very inspiring and interesting and means that we're all exploring good stuff. There are a couple of wonderful people. Very quickly before we move on, yeah. um, where can people find out more about The House of Q? Because I'm not 100% sure when this will go out yeah, but there's totally. always stuff going on people are probably listening to this being like I, I must come and see this show yeah, how can totally. they find out we're on all the different social medias so if you search for the house of Q which is the letter Q they will find us or of course Neil Kelso stuff I'm always sharing when we have stuff that's shared we're on all of the socials find us on the instagrams and the tweets and the facebooks and the we're only a little bit on linkedin i don't think we're properly on linkedin but who's on linkedin anyway no no one's on digital marketers and recruiters yes that's all it is we don't care about them we care about cabaret stars is there any other names you want to to drop my way neil about um kane label are amazing have i mentioned them At the moment, I'm collaborating a lot with an amazing artist called Abby Collins, who is just legend of all things cabaret, very experienced street performer, so hula hoop artist, ballet trained, very, very funny, amazing singer, has lots of brilliant characters, and is very incredibly entertaining whilst also weaving in very important political messages. Immediately after the Brexit vote, we put together a Abby spearheaded a brilliant cabaret called Brexit, where... Top people from across Cabaret came together and did acts reflecting the mood of the times and what people were doing. Um, so Abby's a very inspiring person. There's loads. There's too many to mention, really. A couple of nights ago, I was performing with Victoria Falconer, who you may know from Fringe Wife Clubs, or performances Victor Victoria, East End Cabaret, and a phenomenal, phenomenal performer. And when we were on the bill together, I just got a message in the afternoon from her saying, oh, we're doing a show together tonight. Should we do some duos? What should we do? And um, we've got stuff that we've done before, so it will be a musical duo of her or me playing saw, and one of us on the piano, one of us on the accordion, one of us singing, maybe swapping over. Uh, we once co-hosted Gin House Burlesque, so Gin House Burlesque is another thing to look up. They do amazing, sensational burlesque shows, which are immersive and incredible. Yeah, in that, Professor Kelso and Victor Victoria 
did a cover of our own version of Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, which involved as many instruments as we could possibly do, and then her drinking me under the table. And there's constantly new people, so this is probably coming out after Halloween, but for our Halloween House of Q show at Theatre Delhi in London, we our special guest is Tina Turner, Tea Lady, who is an absolute character comedy legend who is just brilliant. One to watch is Kiki Malek, who is a character comedy burlesque star who is kind of like if Melania Trump had a YouTube channel, it's that. It's amazing, it's funny, it's empowering, it's uplifting. Um, there's Lily Snatchdragon, who does brilliant burlesque and political cabaret all about racial stereotypes that people face, confronting those, putting them on stage, so just making light of it. There's just so many. I could talk all day about all the brilliant people and I've missed out a million people but they're out there and everyone who's listening should do their best to get to any kind of live things that they can because it's just brilliant the number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic circus comedy and variety you're listening to talking tricks well at this point ladies and gentlemen we want to uh, mention neil's show i draw clouds it's on this wednesday the 21st of november at seven o'clock and then at nine o'clock. He's doing two shows. He's doing the same show twice. What a nutter. Why is he doing that? Because it's a new show. Yeah. He's bedding it in, in central London, near Liverpool Street, at the House of Q. But did the seven o'clock one sell out or something? The seven o'clock one, I believe, is sold out. So it's so popular that he's put on a second show. Yeah. So tickets are probably going to sell very fast over the next few days, particularly now that it's mentioned on this podcast, which we know gets listened to by at least... 18 people? At least 18, 18 and more, I believe. It's doing well. This one's going to do very well because it's a great interview with Neil. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. But they I, don't know that before they listen to it. I know. That's the problem, isn't it? They don't know it's good before we do it. Yeah. But they should do. They should trust us. But if they listen to the old ones, they'll know that the new ones are going to be good as well, don't they? Yeah, if they've listened to the old ones, or if this is the first one you're listening to, then listen back to the old ones. What, so they can go back and listen to the ones we've already done? At any point they can go, they're not going anywhere. It's going to be a new podcast. What, they stay on there forever? They stay on there forever, a new podcast every Monday. But, in a moment, Neil is going to talk to us about his new show, I Draw Clouds. I want to make sure you do go to that, because there are some tickets available. And when you say I Draw Clouds, do you mean you draw clouds? It's a show called... Laura Table Draws Clouds? No, it's called Neil Kelso, I Draw Clouds. Oh, right. So he's drawing clouds. He's drawing the clouds. So you're not in the show? I'm not in the show, but I will be in the audience at the nine o'clock one, so I'm going at seven. You're not going at seven. I am. You're not. You're going at nine. <laughs> really? And Neil gifted us some tickets, and I've got your tickets. That makes him seem very generous. Now. Well, he is. He's very generous, and he's very lovely to stop fidgeting with that, because you're putting me off whilst I'm trying to do my bit here. Why are you, what are you fidgeting with there? Lots of ducks. It's a notepad. Yeah. But it's made entirely of ducks. Okay. So there's like probably 500 of them. So I've got 500 ducks in my hands. You've got 500 ducks in your hands and what is, you've written things on them or what have you written on them? These are my notes for important things that I'm supposed to say. Right, go on then. Neil Kelso. Yeah. So that I don't forget his name. You can He's get the guest. You can get rid of that duck. We've already done that bit. Oh, that's me taking off one of the ducks. Thing is, I don't know where to put them. Can you recycle sticky things? Yeah. You can? Yeah. Okay. And are all pens recyclable? I don't know. So I've written on them with a variety of different coloured pens. What's it say on your middle ducks? You've got ten seconds before we go back to the Neil Kelso interview. Subscribe. Yep. To the podcast. Yep. On Podbean and iTunes. Perfect. Have you got one about rating or reviewing? 
Hang on. I must admit, I wrote something irrelevant to the podcast on some of these. Right. You could rate and review this podcast on Podbean. And the other one. And iTunes. And say lovely things about us on social media. But for now, we'll get back into it with Neil Kelso. Hi, I'm Alex Oddball. Come visit us at oddballs.co.uk to find your next prop. Got to the point that we, we can move on to, to these trees. Woo! Words that I've been dropping, you've been dropping. We've already spoken about the performers. We've spoken, actually, probably about a lot of the meat of what makes mm. these trees important yeah. in what makes Cabaret important. Let's let the listener in that doesn't okay. know about yes. these trees. Tell us all about it. So, it's a show called These Trees Are Made Of Blood, which, in summary, explores the dirty war in Argentina, which was in the sort of 1980s, in which terrible, terrible war crimes were committed, genocide on a massive scale by a fascist dictatorship. So it's exploring that history, which we, especially in this country, we tend not to be very aware of. We're aware of the Falcons' War, but we had a very different narrative, and certainly the stories we tell about it here don't represent the terrible things that were happening at the time. So at the time of the World Cup, In Buenos Aires, there were people in concentration camps who should not have been there, nobody should be there, but people in concentration camps being tortured who could hear outside their window the cheers as goals were scored. And for them to know that the world was watching their city and nobody was listening to them broke my heart when I learned about it and I was devastated to have not even really been aware enough of that chapter in history. I was approached in 2014 by the producer. He had Bolivian heritage and was very, of course, very connected to that geopolitical history he'd been approached by two phenomenal people so amy draper who is one of the rising stars of theatre direction in the uk definitely no one to watch uh, just done a show with the rsc that was amazing and darren clark who is an amazing performer he's in broadway at the moment with his new musical the wicker man which is winning awards and things two brilliant people approached him with this show that they wanted to do they wanted to tell this story of the history of argentina through cabaret through an immersive cabaret that the audience would arrive into, knowing that they were coming to Argentina, knowing that they were coming to a political cabaret, but brought into a very false sense of security of the time leading up to the military junta where popular opinion tends to rally behind national figures, as we've seen in our current political climate. And it's a show that makes the audience very responsible for having supported putting these people in power, for not bringing them to task soon enough, and it follows the story of some of the disappeared. So the story of Argentina is that 30,000 people were disappeared, and that was the state's term for it, basically kidnapped and thrown from planes into the sea or thrown into mass graves, murdered, because they didn't agree with government or they were students or they were outsiders for some other reason. And it was the mothers of the disappeared who brought their protest very publicly to the world stage by marching, demanding the return of their disappeared, in inverted commas, children. So the mothers of the disappeared marched, and also the grandmothers of the disappeared, because they were babies born in the concentration camps that were given to military families and raised as their own. So there were children who are our age now, so I'm in my 30s, but children who are that kind of age now, who are now discovering that the family they've grown up with are war criminals that kidnapped them and maybe love them very much and maybe they don't have another family to go to and it's a very complex history but it's such an important story because it's a story that's still happening around the world it's happening at the moment in Mexico it's happening at the moment in Brazil 
and approaching that through cabaret allows people to access that history, allows us to empathise with human characters, allows us to understand the story from a very human perspective whilst also learning and the idea is for it to open up dialogue about this chapter that should never happen again. It might be a case of maybe giving us a show synopsis without this background. Mm. I wonder in what way did the show tell this story? My involvement with it began when I got a phone call from a producer who is somebody who'd come to see me in wet paint at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2012, the magic show that I did with Ben Hart um, and our jazz trio. He came to that show and stayed and chatted as lots of people do at the Fringe, stayed and chatted and we had a lovely chat and swap notes about what was good to go and see at the time and what had we seen and what had we heard about and just broadly kept in touch and I got a phone call out of the blue from him one day where he said nothing other than Neil can you make people disappear and I asked if the call was being recorded and <laughs> and I was hooked he was like I need you to come and meet these people I would really like they really want someone who is a magician who can sing who can play the piano who ideally has cabaret experience and they want you to help devise and he was like we've looked around and we've looked at the people that have some of those skills and we think you'd be an interesting person to talk to so I went and met them and they are phenomenal people so we had this interesting conversation about how would you develop a cabaret that is both an interesting evening of theatre that tells this story without being preachy that represents some people's story without pretending that we speak on their behalf so the devising process was three weeks initially we did it in 2015 at the Southwark Playhouse and we had three weeks to basically create the show so they'd already written Darren had already written the songs largely we were a cast of nine so there was myself Alexander Lutley who we just talked about um, and a cast of very very talented multi-skilled brilliant actor musicians so people who can act and play and sing and dance and just phenomenal inspiring amazing people and together we created a cabaret so the audience come in and you're in a cabaret in buenos aires the mc is the first time we did it was played by greg barnett who's very charismatic very handsome brilliant singer very funny very dashing wonderful military gentleman who you're totally on side with, and his jokes gradually become a little bit offensive, but you're still carried along. And the cabaret acts happen, and there's a dark theme to them, but you're still enjoying them until there's a turn, which I won't spoil, but is a, a very dark turn in which people start going missing, and then their story starts to unfold, and the cabaret literally, physically falls apart around you during the course of the evening until you're left in this shell of truth where all of the glitz and sparkles have been stripped away and you realise that what you've watched is real. So very emotionally hard-hitting and, yeah, and telling the true stories of Argentina. And we did have um, a lot of Argentinian people come to see the show who would stay and share their heartbreaking family histories with us. One day after the show, I played, my character was Suarez, who is Chief of Naval Intelligence, who was very heavily inspired by Menem, who was, of course, naval intelligence, who was one of the masterminds behind the disappearances, etc. And a huge bear of a man came up to me in the bar after the show and shook my hand and said, it's nice to meet you again, Admiral. And it just broke my heart. And he had served under this man. His wife was there. One of the stories in the show was about her best friend who had been kidnapped at gunpoint in front of her. She'd had to go and identify the body. It had been in a lake for months and was the parents were too frightened to go she knew it was her friend she was afraid to confirm that it was her friend's body because it would implicate her in some kind of conspiracy theory of communism so devastating stuff and uh, a show that was made possible to be told because of cabaret supporting that so really heavy topics really dark things but i having done it 
feel like it's the most important thing I've ever done because the conversations you have are just so important. It's not people coming up to you afterwards saying, oh, that's amazing, how did you find my card? Or you're so clever, or how do you remember all that stuff? Or how can you play piano without music? Or it's, it's lovely to receive compliments for skills that you've accrued, but it's so, so much more important when somebody comes up to you and says, I left Argentina because of this, and I'm so happy this story's being told, and it, I've cried all I can cry, and, and then it's just keep doing it. And that is, it feels like that changes the world. Because if there were even a few people in that audience who thought differently about historical events because of it, or who are now thinking differently about what's happening in America, what's now happening in this country, what's happening around the world, if it's changed a few people's perspectives, it's been worth it. So it feels important. I have a follow-up question, but mm, before, I, before I ask it, I didn't see the show. Uh, but there's a man sat to my right who stopped eating Turkish delight as soon as Mm. this was mentioned and listening to you speak about this show which is so important I would imagine our our listener stopped (laughs) whatever they were doing Mm. and listened to it because it's really interesting stuff I wonder though Ed Kane, mm. do you have kind of something you'd like to add about this conversation about these trees? Because I know that it did have a real impact on on Ed when he went to watch it. Well, I, I think Neil has kind of got the point across, but the thing I remember taking away from the show is that, I mean, was it two hours long, Neil? It was. Um, yeah, yeah, it was just under two hours. You came and saw it at the Arcola, didn't you? In I saw it at the Arcola, and I would yeah. say of the two hours, at least an hour and a half was fun cabaret it was very similar to a lot of things I've seen and you were you were having a nice time and you were kind of lured into this false sense of security that everything was nice and everything was happy and then there was the big twist and you were like wow I'm watching and I didn't know the story and I purposely didn't research the story before I came to watch the show because I only came to watch it because you were in it pretty much so I came with no idea of what it was going to be and then you had this big twist at the end and I was like what a fantastic story and then it wasn't till the end that you told me it was a true story and it's only really cabaret can do that that you can have it touched every single emotion within two hours and perhaps I shouldn't say what the actual final moment is but at the the final moment I just sort of stood there looking at the stage in utter silence really and I think you just you just kind of have to take it in and it's it's a wonderful show that I think anyone should go and watch and it's it's going to touch every single emotion really. It's really interesting that journey that you go on as an audience member depending on your level of knowledge of any of the history that twist happened at different times for different people so Argentinian people that came into the room from the very first minute were horrified like because they could see this jolly presentation of something that they know they know to the core of them is so awful but to those of us that didn't know the history and that was most of certainly the british audience huge proportion of people some of the older people that came that had researched falkland wars and and lived through it of course and had seen more sides to the falklands war than people of sort of our decades had got it a little bit earlier but it's really interesting people like the realization of what you're watching happens at different pe- at different times for different people and on stage you could feel that and there wasn't a show that I didn't have a secret crying behind the piano at some point because it would hit me at a different time every day and you would, like you'd feel it in the room where it suddenly all turns um, and the the music is available on iTunes if you want to hear the album these trees are made of blood 
Um, you can hear me playing piano and singing, and there's nine phenomenal actor musicians. So yeah, well, thank you very much for coming. Because that's another fun bit of it, is that everyone, all the performers and the musicians kind of all move around. So you do kind of have, I don't know if you set it up the same for every show, but you've kind of got a pit, so to speak, mm. but at the top of the stage, where for almost half the show, there's people that are just playing the role of a, a musician, mm. and then all of a sudden they're playing this very important character and this actor and that's the other thing I took away from it is what an amazing cast of people that that can do both things mm. yeah it's and it's so inspiring being in a situation where you're collaborating with those people because they're bringing their phenomenal a game but in their halo you learn so much as well of you just pick up so much professionalism and technique and and you just observe brilliant choices they make, and you just think, that's amazing. And just every day you learn so much. And it's emotionally draining going through that history and the days when you have to spend rehearsing torture scenes, which completely destroy you. But throughout it all, seeing some of these people who are very, very experienced, amazing performers was brilliant. And yeah, an interesting thing is the two different times uh, that it's been hosted in full scale when it was first at Southwark Playhouse, it was staged effectively in the round, um, where there was a central cabaret stage, and there was a more domestic scene, which could represent the homes and various other things. Um, we had a brilliant percussionist in the cast called Elon, Elon, who is um, a doctor of drumming. He's the man who wrote the book on the rhythm of performance, and he finds percussion in everything around you and there was a third space that was the band space. Whereas at the Arcola, it was a much more kind of, it was still audience on three sides, but it has a very different effect when you reach the ending where you have this realization of all the things that have happened and how it all connects. It's a very interesting experience having an audience standing as one facing it compared to an audience who are standing completely around you looking at each other. They were both very different experiences and quite amazing. So, And I think it's a big honour to bring magic into that and have magic help tell the story because Suarez um, was effectively a propaganda minister. He very much controlled what people would think. In the um, early, in the first iteration of it, it was very much mentalism heavy and with moments of suggestion hypnosis and some illusions and special effects um, as part of his cabaret acts and then his ongoing character. Then the second time we did it at the Arcola, we explored the propaganda more differently to be less mind-reading and more mind-writing, more on the hypnosis side. And so, yeah, so it's been very interesting exploring propaganda and there's other spin-off projects happening as a result of that. So um, at the RSC recently, um, a team have just done The Day of the Living, which explored the very recent events in Mexico, um, similar disappearances explored differently through Cabaret, and we're looking at other projects as well that do other interesting political things. So yeah, this is this is not so much talking about tricks, but it's definitely the context that tricks are in, and they're helping tell the story for people. And So yeah. Well, I think the biggest issue is a lot of times people do tricks without a context. They just get up and perform it, and I think if anyone can be inspired by 
monumental events mm. and that can improve them as a performer, then th- that's a good thing and that's something people should walk to- work towards. Um, yeah, I mean, it's valid. It's, I think what I'm doing with it is very much on a kind of political theatre, performance art, almost relational art area, which is very conceptual and very, um, probably very uncommercial. Um, so I wouldn't say it's the right choice for everyone. I think doing very commercial, wham bam, thank you ma'am, magic that is delightful and funny and clever and wonderful is also equally valid as entertainment. So yeah, it's all fun. Have I made it gloomy? No, not at all. Okay, good. Not, not at all. Um, and these trees are made of blood. If it tours or does anything again, we will be sure to mention it mm. on Talking Tricks. But I'm interested to know how being involved in something as profound as that was for you has influenced your new show, I Draw Clowns. Well, it changed me as a human in every respect. Um, my new show, I Draw Clouds, which is coming out very shortly, I'm doing it late November in a black box theatre space. It is going to be an hour-long exploration of things that have been themes in my magic over the years, but which I've never put into a show. The time's never really been right to kind of explore some of the things that are in it. And I'm not sure what it's going to be like. That's what, So it's, it's very clearly billed as a preview. It's complete and polished and is a standard that I'm very happy with. But until I've kind of put it in front of an audience, I don't know quite what direction it will go. Um, because... No matter how much I prepare, when I put material in front of an audience, it changes hugely. Just, there's no way of preparing for that whole second player in the room. So we shall see. So after it, I don't know where it's going to go. Currently, there are lots of strands in it. I've learnt so much about just storytelling from working in theatre. Some of the devices that you have available, which are very empowering compared to sometimes, I think in magic... uh, Uh, an easily assumed route would be that you begin with tricks that you can practice at home with things that are quite easy to get to and that's a beginning place then you show it to more people and then the trajectory maybe is assumed that you just keep growing your crowd so you do it for a few friends then you maybe put on a small show then you start doing shows for groups of people then maybe theatres then then you gradually escalate maybe a television series and then you do arenas and that's maybe the trajectory that's maybe assumed But for me, that's only one way of looking at it, because actually every time you change your venue, when you move from being in a conversational situation with two people to being in a table hopping or parlour environment, really it would be useful to completely rethink everything you're doing, because you're in a new space and it's a new, totally new context. So we need to learn transferable skills, like the slights and things that we use, or props, but we need to completely rethink the environment. So this is a theatre show. Um, Lately, a lot of my work has either been in cabarets or in Spiegel tents or in those sorts of pop-up, weird and wonderful, immersive types of places where almost anything technical is possible, but there's choices I make about material that are driven by that. So this is a show where I'm leaving that behind, making a show that tells some interesting stories for me, and hopefully is fun for an audience. It's a brand new narrative. Are they all brand new tricks, or is there routines that you've done in, in, in a different way that you've developed for this, or did you think, I'm going to start from scratch? There's nothing in this show that I've just drag and dropped from current or past material, but at the same time in my journey in magic, I've played with almost everything. 
that is in magic. All of the classics and all of the obscure variations on classics. And I've dabbled with lots of things. It'd be arrogant to say it's everything. But I've dabbled with so many things that I would struggle to find something that felt totally new to me that already exists. So I have created some things that aren't that. Yeah, the show has very much come from the feelings that I want in the room rather than I will start with an opener and I will end with a closer and I need a funny one and a happy one and a loud one and a quiet one and some audience participation in the middle and a story and then and then a ending where it all makes sense. I haven't started with that. I've started with a collection of moments that I want to have and a story on a few levels that I want to tell. It's still in its development process. It still is. I'm now in the editing phase where I'm hacking bits out of it, tweaking and things. So yeah, so it's interesting. So in terms of process, that's kind of what's gone into it. So it's not a sort... I didn't begin with a story, I didn't begin with tricks. I've begun with kind of theatrical moments I'm interested in. So it's kind of a conceptual show and weird and wonderful, but will hopefully be funny. Will hopefully... It's not going to be heavily political. It's not going to... You don't need to prepare yourself for a night of genocide. But there is always a theme in my my work that I want the world to be a better place and kinder and nicer and more interesting and more inclusive and more celebratory of individualism. So those are always themes in what I do. Um, it's not going to be terribly preachy. It's it's not aimed to be fun for all the family, but it's, yeah, it should be fun and nice and inclusive and upbeat. What's the ambitions with, with the show itself beyond initial previews? The show could go in lots of different directions. I um suspending my commitment to take it anywhere yet beyond the preview it's entirely possible that it might work at the fringe as you will know fringe shows you have to have a very specific proposition to make money financially yeah well there's a range of propositions you can have technical theater wise venues can be tricky and you need to get in and out in 15 minutes in most situations whether you're free fringe or not so i'm avoiding thinking like that because if i do i will fall into the trap of not having a big table even though i want a big table because i can't carry a table upstairs in a tiny venue and get it in and out so i'm avoiding making any choices based on whether it will go to fringe whether it could be a theater show that tours whether actually it will all shrink down and be a 10 15 minute or 25 minute cabaret thing in itself or it might expand up and be a show that could include other performers so at the moment I'm aiming for my preview to capture the without trying to sound too wanky like (laughs) essence of like a feeling and the story and the atmosphere that's the priority for this and then if I can tailor it to take it to loads of places great so that might so yeah ask me on November the 30th. I'll have probably made up my mind by then what I'm doing. I will do. I'll, yeah. I'll be in touch. St. Andrew's Day. Text. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Neil. Still drawing clouds? <laughs> um, well, uh, we're pretty much ready to wrap up, Neil, but um, Ooh, I, I'm getting wrapped up. I draw clouds. A magician's ideas escape from his notebook. Let's, let's stick on books because um, oh. you're, you're working. We're big advocates of reading. Are you? <laughs> As opposed to two people. It took us so long to read. Now that we've learned to read, mm. we're encouraging reading. Reading get, is the best thing anyone can do. Yeah. Get reading off, or dancing. Reading or dancing. Get off the internet. Don't don't learn tricks from idiots um, that have got a really nice advert. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're not those idiots. Not those idiots. Neil, you're writing a book. Tell yeah, us about buy it. <laughs> buy my book. That's true. The book is pretty much written. It's a book for magicians. It's in collaboration with and centred around 
the sensational and wonderful and inspiring and brilliant Ben Hart, who is a very exciting magician that I'm sure you're all much more aware of than who I am. But Ben and I have been friends for a good 15 years or so. Pretty much everything either one of us has worked on, we've at least bounced ideas off each other, usually kept each other in the loop about pretty much everything. And so, so we've both seen each other evolve as performers, as thinkers. I've seen Ben's material develop and change and things come and go over the years. So um, it's been a really fun process working with him to effectively document some of those journeys. So some of his routines, explaining some of his routines, where they've come from, some of his thinking. It's not just tricks, it's a book full of everything. There's probably not much more I can say at the moment, but yeah, it's happening. It'll come out sometime in the new year, which will uh, be 2019. Yeah, <laughs> depending yeah. when you're listening to this. Hopefully I'll get this out within the next 14 months. Great, lovely. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, so that's an interesting project. And yeah, books, everyone should read. Books, books are the best thing. I'm reading Sapiens at the moment, it's really good. Highly oh, recommend are you? Mm, mind-blowingly good, if you've not read it, Sapiens. You were reading it when I saw you on a train once, mm, I think. Yeah. Let's finally um, tick off a few books in our book club here then. Neil, give us magic books, but if there's any other books that have, you know, had, a, had an impact on you as a performer or even as a human being, mm. what books would you recommend and why? Magic books, I think there are loads. And I always have the attitude you can learn something from everyone. And some magic books, you have to look very hard to find the thing to learn. But sometimes that's the thing you learn. Obviously, the things that everyone tells you are the best ones because they are what all magicians agree on. So they will teach you what is the norm of thinking in magic. So that will give you a head start when you're then talking to other magicians. It won't necessarily tell you the right way of doing things, but at least you'll understand why magic is the way it is. Um, so things like 13 Steps, if you're into mentalism... Real Road to Card Magic, if you're going into the card magic-y stuff. When I was beginning, I joined my local magic club and devoured all of their books. So I worked through pretty much everything. That's the way I work, and I like working. And actually, I find magic books very easy to skim through, because you know, there's pictures and descriptions, and it's episodic, so if you don't like a trick, you can easily skip past it. Some of the quirky, more interesting things, like Paul Harris's writing, is very interesting and very quite left-field. I really like the way Luke Jamay thinks about things. If anybody is performing to any other human being in the world, and they are magicians, they should read Faye Presto's lecture notes, which are, in my opinion, the current definitive text of performing to people in the real world, because Faye Presto's probably the best living magician, especially performing that kind of material. And so not only do you observe, absorb brilliant material, you also absorb their thinking behind it. And you can see the choices they've made and why. And that then informs you. You don't necessarily need to make the same decisions, but you can see the things they came up against and how they chose to solve it. And so if you disagree, you just backtrack a bit and you've got your solution. So obviously Tamariz is great for that. Tamariz is a brilliant thinker and amazing. But just everything, even bonkers books that have got a stupid title and that sold no copies and yeah, just read and read and read and skim and ideas come from everywhere. So everything. Neil Kelso, thanks for joining us on Talking Tricks. Thanks! <laughs> now let's all get in with the rest of this Turkish delight. Ooh. There's time for one more Professor Kelso or Dr. Kelso. Play the jingle, play the jingle. Dr. Kelso or Professor Kelso. I'm no 
Superman. Who said this? Okay. My name is Kelso, and I love whores! Oh, gosh. Um, well, uh, not me. <laughs> I do love whores. But anyway, I think that is a Dr. Kelso quote. It's a Dr. Kelso quote. <laughs> it's a good one. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cade and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.